This is Audible. The most interesting thing about the room was the multitude of symbols that decorated its walls. From floor to ceiling, figures stood in angular poses, each bearing the head of a particular animal. Dogmen, birdmen, and crocodile men jostled alongside each other for space. One even had the head of an insect. Otherwise, the room was just a room. Dark, silent, and empty. Then something happened that made the room slightly less dark, a lot less silent, and a great deal less empty. There was a flashing light and a rushing noise, and finally a transparent shape swirled into existence. The shape shimmered and wobbled at first, as if uncertain where it wanted to be. Then it decided. It solidified, became a battered blue box and settled into place in the corner of the room. The TARDIS had arrived. BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, The Flight of the Sun God by Nev Fountain, read by Nicola Bryant. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor waved his hands across his timeship's controls and twiddled his fingers, as if he was about to play the piano. He liked to treat the activation of the TARDIS scanner with a sense of occasion. Now then, let's see what wonders we're about to discover, shall we? He turned a dial, and the scanner shutters glided open to reveal what was outside the ship. Perry... The Doctor's plucky human companion treated his activation of the scanner with customary sarcasm. Wow! She laughed. We've discovered a wonderful empty room! The Doctor frowned and returned his attention to the control panel. Any idea where we are? Perry knew that the TARDIS was unpredictable and seldom obeyed its owner. The Doctor pouted. I think we're somewhere in the outer edges of the Metellus Cluster. I'm reasonably certain that we're in the mid to late 35th century. Perry peered closely at the scanner, where some detail was resolving itself amidst the gloom. Are you sure we're not on Earth? Because those symbols on the walls look just like hieroglyphs. The doctor joined her, looked at the symbols and frowned. That's not possible. We're nowhere near Earth. Perry grinned. Hey, do you think this is a pyramid on an alien planet? Perhaps those trashy books in airports are all true. You can tell me, Doctor. I won't tell a soul. Aliens built the pyramids, didn't they? Well, Perry, if you must know, aliens did build the pyramids. But in the great galactic copyright wars of the 23rd century, most of the alien ones were vaporized by the Egyptian tourist board. So, if this really is a pyramid, the chances are we are on Earth. The consul made an indignant burble. The TARDIS is very insistent. She says we're in another part of the galaxy. And I try not to argue with her. She can get very stroppy. 
The doctor's hand reached out and pulled the large red lever that opened the doors to the outside. Perhaps we should take a closer look. Stepping from the TARDIS's police box exterior, the doctor strode across the room, the beam from his torch dancing and hopping along the walls. Perry followed behind him. Even in the gloom, she could see his multicolored coat flapping around as he examined the hieroglyphs. These appear to be from the tomb of Seti I, from the 13th century BC. Perry touched one. Doctor, these hieroglyphs aren't made of stone. They're metal. The doctor put his hand on the wall. So they are. Suddenly the floor lurched. Perry was thrown to the floor. What's going on? She cried. The doctor had managed to cling on to the edges of the TARDIS. Perry, I think we've landed in a spaceship. Upstairs in the executive conference room of the Sun God spaceship, Fletnicks watched as a pot of coffee slid along the table towards her, followed closely by a plate of luxury biscuits. She stopped them before they fell on the floor. It's done it again, she sighed. None of the others answered. They usually ignored her. Isn't anybody going to fix it? Fletnick said in a slightly louder voice. It's a technical problem, Brian's department, rumbled Duncan, a grim-looking Scottish man with a large beard. He was reading a holographic newspaper which flickered in his hands as the ship lurched, but soon re-established its identity. Duncan turned a page to read the sports section. Fletnick's wish she had brought something to read. Well, Brian's not here, is he? He's been missing for two weeks. Shouldn't you find out where he is? You are head of security after all. Duncan's huge furry eyebrows twitched indignantly. Hey, this is a big ship. If Brian wants to get lost in the service ducks, well, there's miles of them. Fletnick slumped back in her chair and crossed her arms. They waited. And then they waited some more. After 20 minutes, she said, Maybe Mr. Revere has got lost in the service ducks, too. Duncan grunted. Warren sighed and rolled his eyes. Lorraine examined her laptop screen. See the universe, Fletnick thought. That's what she had in mind when she took the job as head of customer services for Sun God Intergalactic. She didn't want to be stuck in some boring office job having boring meetings. Yet here she was. Stuck in a meeting room, drinking coffee and eating biscuits for three hours. This is getting stupid. He's not coming, Fletnick said, for what felt like the 95th time. We should call off the meeting and reschedule. We can't, said Warren, head of interplanetary sales. He flashed his very white teeth in a way that he thought was charming, but that was, in reality, slightly sinister. Mr. Revere called this meeting, so we have to be here when he arrives. Fletnick sighed. Warren, look, it's obvious he's changed his mind. Lorraine, who was head of marketing, pulled her beaky nose up from a spreadsheet, pointed it at Fletnick's and gave a long, patronising glare. You have no idea how Mr. Revere's mind works, she said with a disdainful tone. Take it from someone who knows. He'll be here. Fletnick's blue skin flushed deep purple. Her extra eyelids flickered in fury. Take it from someone who knows. Lorraine didn't know Spalding Revere any better than she did. After all, none of them had actually met him. 
Mr. Revere had never been a passenger on the Sun God before. Well, why would he? CEOs of energy companies in the 21st century didn't stay on their oil rigs, not if they could help it. So the fact that Mr. Revere had chosen to accompany them on this voyage was a source of great excitement, matched only by the source of great frustration that he had remained locked away in his specially constructed inner sanctum at the top of the ship. No, what Lorraine was implying was that Fletniks, a mere salamandrel from the Schindel Cluster, would never understand the ways of humans. Fletniks was always encountering that attitude from the Earthers around the table. Oh, yes, it was always subtle, never explicit enough for anyone to be reprimanded and sent to the personnel booth for re-education. But it was there, nonetheless. Fletniks was the only non-human on the board of executives, and Lorraine made it very clear that she believed the only reason Fletniks was there was positive discrimination. Fletniks was just about to think up a suitably clever and snappy reply to Lorraine when the ship lurched again. I wish the pilot would make up his mind where he wants to go, Perry said. I'm getting space sick. The doctor wasn't listening. He spread his arms and felt his way along the wall. Shine your torch down here, will you? I found something. Perry did as she was told, turning the beam of her torch to add to the doctor's own. He was next to a large television screen. That doesn't look very ancient either, said Perry. Ancient Egyptians don't watch TV. No, said the doctor with a grin. Unless it's watch with mummy. Perry scowled. I don't even know what that means, but I'm guessing that was meant to be some kind of joke. Very nearly, smiled the doctor. He moved his hand to touch the screen and it flickered into life, showing a corporate logo that resembled a giant yellow smiling sun. It's a computer terminal. Works with motion sensors. I wonder what happens if I do this. He waved his hand again. The Sun logo was replaced by a blizzard of facts and figures and a schematic of a spaceship. Amazing, breathed the Doctor, his eyes wide with amazement. Look at this! This spaceship is shaped like a sphinx! Wow, breathed Perry with genuine awe. The owner of this ship is really into ancient Egypt. The Doctor's hand swept across the controls again and more diagrams appeared as well as facts and figures about the ship, all written in English. That's the ship's flight path. Every course change that's occurred over the past few days. But if this is correct... His voice grew concerned. Then something very wrong is happening on this ship. Suddenly, Perry realized they were no longer alone. There was a skittering noise from the dark corners of the room. Something scuttled on the edge of her vision. She whirled around. Doctor, there's something in here with us. The doctor swept his torch beam around the room, searching for movement. Down there, said Perry. It looked like an animal. Do spaceships get infested by rats? Two red eyes glowed at them. Perry backed away. We've definitely got company. The doctor swung his torch. Transfixed in the beam was what looked like an animal, but its skin was grey, smooth and metallic and it had a long, segmented body and an angular head. The ears were pointed, and the metallic claws and teeth looked very sharp. It's a robot cat! The doctor looked delighted. 
I've always had a soft spot for cats. He knelt down and offered his hand. Puss, puss, puss. Immediately, the first pair of eyes was joined by another. And another. Soon, a dozen pairs of glowing red lights were shining in their direction. The robot stepped toward Perry and emitted a low electronic growl. Don't move, Perry, the doctor whispered. Don't worry, I won't, she whispered back. The cats continued to move closer to Perry. The doctor rummaged in his pockets and found a clockwork mouse. He quickly wound it up and it skittered in random directions across the floor. Hey, hey, look, robot kitties, a robot mouse to chase. But the cats didn't move at all. Instead, they remained pointing towards Perry. They don't like my mouse and they're ignoring me, said the doctor. They only seem to be interested in you. Perry sighed. Oh, great. Of course they are. The doctor threw the TARDIS key to Perry. Get back inside. You'll be safe there. Well, what about you? I have to find whoever's in charge, said the doctor. They must be told what's happening to this ship. Reluctantly, Perry slipped the key in the lock. Once inside, she activated the scanner again. She could see that the cats were standing guard in a tight circle around the ship. She was trapped. Fletnix's hearing was more sensitive than the others, so it was she who first heard footsteps outside the conference room. Hey, said Fletnix hopefully. I think Mr. Revere is finally here. She ran back to her chair, picked up a pen and pretended to look busy. The door burst open and a man entered out of breath. He had blonde curly hair and was wearing brightly coloured clothes. Ah, there you all are, he said with a grin. I've been looking for someone to talk to. For a large ship, there's not much of a crew. Who the devil are you? demanded Duncan. Never mind who I am, said the man. I have something very important to tell you. He drew himself up to his full height. This ship, he boomed, is heading straight for the heart of a sun. There are a few seconds of stunned silence. They all looked at the man in frank disbelief. Then they all laughed. Yes, of course he's headed straight for a sun. Warren giggled, revealing his oddly white teeth. That's the whole point of the ship, Lorraine added. That's what we do, said Fletnix. We go to suns and harvest their energy. We're en route to Magnox Major right now. Oh, said the man, deflated. Oh. Right, you, whoever you are, barked Duncan. He pulled his blaster from his belt, grabbed the man by his arm and steered him out of the conference room. Just the place for stowaways. The man sighed. Don't tell me. Let me guess. The doctor guessed correctly. Duncan escorted him down the corridor, shoved him roughly into a room and locked the door. Left alone, the doctor peered at his gloomy confines. Once again, the influence of ancient Egypt was everywhere. There were framed artifacts on the wall, a roll of papyrus, a death mask, even a mummified cat. There was also another computer terminal. The doctor moved his hands along the row of hieroglyphs, and the terminal screen sprang into life. It showed an office, again decorated with Egyptian artifacts. The soundtrack was a bland version of Here Comes the Sun, sung by someone who wasn't George Harrison, but sounded a bit like him. 
A man, strikingly handsome, the doctor thought, and oddly familiar, walked into view. He was dressed as a pharaoh, complete with golden headdress. He held a long golden staff with a stylized symbol of an eye on the top. Hi there. The voice was deep and melodious. I'm Spalding Revere, and this is my company, Sun God Intergalactic. You know, when I was a little boy growing up on my native planet Earth, I used to look up at the sun and think, wouldn't it be great if I could walk outside and feel the sunshine on my face without getting sick? Well, my dream came true. With Sun God Intergalactic's unique technology, we bring the power of the sun to your door. We can suck the energy out of your own sun and rehouse the energy in one of our patented mini-suns. You can now have the heat and light you've always enjoyed in complete safety for just 19 credits, 99 a month. And if you pay by direct debit... The doctor waved his hand impatiently and Spalding Revere's smug grin froze into place. The doctor was feeling a little foolish. More often than not these days, he was certain there was danger around every corner and that it was his job to save the day. All too rarely did he realize that the day was doing perfectly well without him. He should get back to Perry, and they should leave right away. Then something occurred to him. Just a moment. Did she say Mad Knox Major? What an old fellow said Warren, when Duncan had returned to the boardroom. Why on earth would he hide away on this ship? It's probably one of those environmentalist extremists, growled Duncan, pouring himself another cup of coffee. The ones who think we should waste money trying to regrow the ozone layers. My thoughts exactly, said Lorraine, engrossed once more in her laptop. Mr. Revere will know what to do with him. Wait a minute, said Fletnix. Did any of you notice something about him? The other three members of the board ignored her as usual, so she said it again, this time more loudly. At last, Duncan looked up. Warren and Lorraine didn't bother. Look around you! Look at the paintings on the wall! Duncan sighed and followed Fletnix's gaze at the paintings of Spalding Revere dressed as a pharaoh. So what? Mr. Revere is obsessed with ancient Egypt. What's your point? Look at his face. Duncan peered at one of the portraits. Revere's arrogant smile was such a familiar fixture, he never really looked at it anymore. What about it? Don't you think that man looks like Spalding Revere? I, well, a little. Warren looked at the paintings too. No, well, maybe. There's something in the eyes, perhaps. Exactly. Have you ever watched that vid program, Boss in Disguise, on Channel Alpha Beta 12? Warren looked confused. No. It's one of those documentary shows. The head of a big company puts on a disguise and goes undercover to see how the company actually works. It's a really good show. The thing I find really funny about it is the disguises that the bosses put on. They're really unconvincing and over the top, and I can't believe how anyone's fooled. Warren frowned. Are you saying... That man! Take off that ridiculous coat and that silly blonde wig, and who do you have? Duncan's face went pale. I do have to say, there is a resemblance. 
ridiculous, Lorraine snapped. Think logically, Lorraine, said Fletnix. We're a thousand parsecs from the nearest inhabited planet. How else would he get on board if he wasn't already here? Well, it could be him, said Warren. Lorraine looked at the portraits, then at Fletnix, with undisguised loathing. She couldn't bear to admit that Fletnix might be right. Hell's bells! And I just locked him up! Duncan shouted. He leapt up and ran out of the room. In due course, the doctor was escorted back to the conference room by Duncan. He was expecting further hostility, possibly even a nasty interrogation with bright lights and a mind probe. To his surprise, the atmosphere in the room was now completely different. They all positively beamed at him and offered him the largest and comfiest chair in the room. Lorraine poured him some fizzy water. Thank you. Uh, I was rather thirsty. Now, said Warren, what's on your mind? As responsible executives, we like to listen to feedback from all our staff. They all nodded furiously. The doctor looked around him with a confused expression. Well, um, the thing is... Coffee, said Lorraine, pouring him a cup. Thank you. Biscuit, added Duncan. Uh, no, thank you, said the doctor. Are you sure you won't have a biscuit? Pressed Duncan. They've got chocolate bits. Chocolate bits? Well, if you insist, thank you. The doctor munched on a biscuit while they all stared at him, with fixed grins on their faces. Warren sat on the table, slightly too close for comfort, and gave a very sickly smile. How's your chair? Is it comfy? Um, very nice, the doctor said. There was a sigh of relief from the board members. Because if it isn't, we can always get another. As I said, we're so keen to get feedback, Warren added, grinning so widely it looked like the top of his head might fall off. The doctor waved a biscuit and dunked it in his coffee. Feedback? Hmm, yes, I do have feedback, actually. Mostly about the morality of destroying suns. But that can wait. You, young lady. He pointed to Fletnix, who jumped up in alarm. When I was here before, you said that you were en route to Magnox Major. That's correct, said Fletnix. Well, you're not. At least not all the time. This ship keeps changing course to a closer sun, Tiresis Minor. Granted, it keeps breaking away and heading back to Magnox, but you're spending longer and longer on your course to Tiresis. Any idea why? Um, Fletnix thought furiously. Warren gave a sickly smile. Uh, that's most likely an error with the navigational computer. That's the responsibility of our technical executive, Brian Meadows. Good, said the doctor, looking at their name badges. I'd like to talk to him. Is he here? Warren's smile flickered. Um, he's been missing for several weeks. The doctor was immediately interested. Missing? Really? Doesn't that worry you? It worries me a great deal, said Lorraine. Unfortunately, our security executive doesn't really think it's that urgent. Do you, Duncan? She looked accusingly at Duncan, who splattered defensively. Brian's like that, protested Duncan. He does disappear sometimes. Well, said the doctor, standing up, if Brian can't help us, perhaps we should find out for ourselves. Where is the navigational computer based? Fletnick said. In your... I mean, in Spalding Revere's inner sanctum. Good. Who wants to take me there? I think I should escort you, 
said Duncan. As head of security, you need protection. Actually, said Warren, as head of planetary sales, I am the more senior. Yes, said Lorraine, but as head of PR, it's my job to show people around. The doctor was getting irritated by the bickering. He pointed at Fletnick's. You'll do, he said. You show me. Me? said Fletnick's, very aware of the expressions of outrage coming from the other members of the board. Are you sure you want me? Yes, let's not hang about. I think we spent quite enough time having this meeting. He got to the door and paused. Can I have another biscuit? Perry was worried. There was still no sign of the doctor. She had been watching the scanner for almost an hour now and nothing had changed. The robot cats hadn't moved at all. They remained crouching around the front of the TARDIS in a wide arc. Perhaps they've been switched off, she said to herself. I'll just take a look outside. It can't hurt, can it? As soon as she put her head outside, the cat sprang back into life. Their eyes glowed red and they emitted a low, electronic growl. Perry slammed the TARDIS door closed, just as the cats leapt to intercept her. She could hear thumping sounds as they hit the outside of the ship. So, she was stuck. She was about to go to the TARDIS library and look for a book to read when a high-pitched humming sound came from outside the ship. Reacting immediately to the noise, the cats writhed and hissed and scuttled away. A tall figure strode into view, wearing a dirty coat and an old scarf knotted around its neck, and a sack over its head. The figure tapped a small black box on its neck, and a low voice was emitted from the device. My name is Brian. Please come out of the ship. I wish to speak to you. Perry didn't move. Brian spoke again using the device. I got rid of the cats for you. You can trust me. Perry made a decision. She pulled the lever to open the TARDIS door and went outside, remaining close to the ship so she could easily get back inside. How can I trust you when you won't show me your face? said Perry. Take the bag off, then we'll talk. The figure stood there motionless, as if grappling with the dilemma. You might find my appearance unpleasant, Perry shrugged. Hey, Brian, I've traveled around a bit, you know. I've seen some pretty scary things. Take it from me. I'm made of stern stuff. The figure nodded. If that's what you want, please do not be alarmed. Brian raised his hand grasped a corner of the bag and tugged it off with one swift movement. Perry gasped in surprise. Brian had the head of a beetle. His eyes were huge and luminous and his mandibles wriggled above his collar. I was not always like this. I was human just like you. I woke up one morning and I had the head of an insect. Just like that? asked Perry. Just like that, replied Brian. A thought occurred to Perry. Have you ever read Kafka's Metamorphosis? Brian's mandibles quivered. Yes, I have, actually. I have it on my palm computer. It wasn't very helpful. It was a bit of a cheat, to be honest, because the man who changed into an insect kept his vocal cords. I had to invent this translating machine all by myself. Perry smiled. At least you've kept your sense of humor. 
it was at this point that one of the robot cats made its move, having hidden itself on the roof of the TARDIS coiled around the lamp. Now it sprang onto Perry's back, sending her flying. Her face hit the floor, and she could feel the robot's claws pushing down on her, tearing through the material of her jacket and embedding into her shoulder blades. She could hear the thing hiss in her ear as its razor-sharp teeth grazed her neck. Then there was a thud and a clang, and the cat was gone. Brian had unsheathed a machete from his backpack and swung it hard at the robot, knocking its head clean off its body. The robot writhed on the floor. Getting to her feet, Perry made a follow-me gesture to Brian. Come on, we'll be safe in the TARDIS. She turned back to the ship but stopped dead. There were two more cats in front of the blue box, tails twitching and eyes glowing. Brian grabbed Perry's hand and yanked her from the room, and they ran into the bowels of the ship. The Doctor and Fletniks travelled slowly upwards in a golden lift. So, you've been waiting for Spalding Revere to turn up for a meeting for three whole days now? Asked the Doctor. Fletniks nodded. The doctor frowned. Don't you think that's odd? Fletniks knew she was being tested. Well, Mr. Revere is a little eccentric, but then again, most geniuses are. The lift pinged as it arrived at the very top of the ship and the doors opened. They were in the head of the Sphinx, whose eyes were two huge viewing platforms looking out into space. Opposite them was an ornate set of doors. I take it that's the inner sanctum, the doctor surveyed the decor. Well, his interest in ancient Egypt is certainly eccentric. More than that, I would say completely bonkers. Fletnik smiled. He's one of the richest men in the galaxy. I don't think he would have been able to achieve that if he was insane. Well, Miss, uh, he peered at her name badge. Miss Fletnik's. I've met a lot of rich people and a lot of mad people, and believe me, there's quite a bit of an overlap. I must say, I'm looking forward to meeting him. Fletnik suppressed a smile. The doctor examined the door. Now, how to get in? No door handle to speak of, hmm? He knocked on the door. Hello? He fished in his pockets, and his face fell. Oh dear, I keep forgetting I don't have a sonic screwdriver anymore. Keep meaning to make another, but never seem to have the time. Wait a moment. Ah! He reached further into his pockets, further than Fletniks thought possible, then slowly pulled out a two-foot-long crowbar. That's the handy thing about having pockets that are bigger on the inside than the outside, he grinned. You can always find something useful. He wielded the crowbar menacingly. It looks like some good old-fashioned brute force is needed. To Fletnik's astonishment, he jammed the crowbar between the doors and hammered it in until he created a small gap a couple of inches across. Then, putting his whole weight behind the bar, he heaved until the door grudgingly gave way. Fletnik couldn't help thinking it was a pretty elaborate way of continuing the pretense. Immediately, they stepped inside. Fletnik could smell a sickly, sweet odour. She had come across that smell before when space raiders once invaded her homeworld and laid waste to her village. 
It was the smell of decay. In the middle of the room was a bed. It was styled like a stone sarcophagus, but attached to it were instruments connected by tubes to portable machines. A slow, rhythmic heartbeat echoed around the room. Lying inside was Spalding Revere. He was quite still. His arms were crossed over his chest, and he was holding what looked like a shepherd's crook in one hand and a stick in the other. Spalding looked nothing like the man in the paintings. He was painfully thin, almost a skeleton. His skin was a sickly shade of yellow stretched across his face like parchment. But, but that's Mr. Revere, she gasped. Yes, said the doctor. But I thought you were Spalding Revere in disguise. Me? The doctor looked indignant. I think we've established that Spalding Revere is a vulgar, arrogant lunatic with no sense of taste or style. How on earth could you mistake him for me? They moved closer to the sarcophagus. Oh my God, breathed Fletnick's in shock. He looks almost mummified, said the doctor helpfully. I was going to say dead, but yes, he looks like that too. The doctor leaned forward and was just checking Spalding's breath to see if he was alive when his eyes snapped open, making Fletnick's cry out in shock. Spalding Revere, I presume, asked the doctor. Spalding glared at the doctor. His eyes were a milky brown like two bruised apples. What are you doing here in my inner sanctum? Just admiring your artifacts. Very impressive, said the doctor innocently. No, you're not. You're here to stop me. You're too late. You can't stop my plan. The doctor leaned on the coffin. What plan? Stop what? What am I supposed to be stopping? Spalding didn't reply. Can I hazard a guess? Said the doctor, gently. I can see from your condition that you're close to death. I can also see you're holding a crook and flail, the ancient Egyptian symbols of leadership and fertility. Am I right in thinking you're planning to die like a pharaoh? Spalding's voice grew intense, excited. Yes, I will leave this mortal realm and ascend to the heavens. I have made preparations for my journey. What preparations? Don't worry, you will all find out soon. Fletnick's frowned. What does he mean by that? I have a pretty nasty idea, muttered the doctor. He leaned over the bed and placed his mouth close to Spalding's ear. What preparations, Mr. Revere? What have you planned? Spalding cackled again, and he twitched as pain shot through his body. He raised a quivering arm, extended a bony finger, and pointed at a computer on the wall. A recording started to play. A grinning Spalding Revere standing outside his inner sanctum, dressed in his pharaoh costume. He looked confident and assured, but Fletnick's could see that even in the film, he was covering up his illness. His deep golden skin was the result of a thick coating of makeup, and his eyes sparkled a little too much, as if they were the product of computer trickery. Hi, said the image. I'm Spalding Revere, your CEO, and I have major news. 
Everyone who knows me knows I'm a straight talker, so I won't beat around the bush. My doctors say I'm going to die soon. I've got Grimes disease. He paused to allow his imaginary audience to gasp in shock. Yes, that's right. As you may know, there's no cure. All the vital organs in my body are shutting down, one by one. So, what does that mean? It means, of course, that I will ascend to the afterlife and join the other gods. He got up and walked around the table to the observation platform, so he was framed by a dramatic starscape. The doctor could see the reflection of the hovering robot camera in the plastic glass. So, what does that mean to you? Well, as any god knows, I will need servants and possessions to accompany me on my journey. The navigational computer will detect the moment that my heart stops and will change the course of this ship, piloting it into the heart of Tiresis Minor. That way, you, my loyal employees, can stay with me and serve me. I can think of no better honor. Can you? See you on the other side. He gave a half wave, half salute. Heavenly music sounded and then the screen went dark. Oh dear, said the doctor quietly. I was afraid it was going to be something like that. What? shouted Fletnix. The doctor turned to Spaulding, who lay grinning in his sarcophagus. That's why the ship has been changing course backwards and forwards, hasn't it? Your heart stopped a few times. Yes, he croaked. I've died several times, but the medical computer has revived me. The doctor nodded with satisfaction. Aha! I knew there was a simple explanation. Fletnix didn't think anyone was taking the situation seriously enough. She grabbed the edge of the sarcophagus. With respect, Mr. Revere, you can't do this. There are people on this ship. They're not your possessions. That's not how he sees it, the doctor said grimly. Spaulding is just doing what he thinks a pharaoh would do if a pharaoh happened to own an intergalactic company housed in a huge ship. Exactly, said Spaulding, grinning like a madman. I employ you all. I own you, body and soul. You're going to kill us all! shouted Fletnix. It's not death, said Spaulding, his voice now little more than a croak. Try to understand. It's just another step on a journey. Your journey, not ours, said Fletnix. You have to stop this now. Fletnix couldn't help herself. She grabbed Spaulding by the shoulders and shook him. Spaulding gave a little gurgle. His eyes bulged and his body sagged. Horrified, she let go and Spaulding fell back into the sarcophagus, a smile settling on his cracked lips. The heartbeat stopped echoing round the room, and the ship lurched, once again changing course for Tiresis Minor. Oh, my gods, whispered Fletnix. What have I done? Brian took Perry through a network of dark corridors. He opened a bulkhead door and led her into a tiny windowless room filled with half-eaten food. 
This is where I've been hiding, he said. I make raids on the catering decks. I've been surviving on bottled water and the nuts they keep for meetings. My full name is Brian Meadows. I am, or rather I was, the technical executive of Sun God Intergalactic. See this? Brian pulled down the collar of his jumper. Perry could see something on Brian's neck, a small glowing device. It looks like an eye. It's a company implant. All employees of Sun God Intergalactic get an implant. It records health, length of service, productivity targets, and so forth. I believe this was used by my boss, Spalding Revere, to rewrite my DNA. I think his obsession with Egyptian mythology has turned into madness. Perry frowned. You're the technical executive? You sound like you're important to the company. I am. I was. So why are you hiding? Why don't you just tell anyone you're here? There was an awkward pause. Eventually, Perry broke the silence. So, what's the reason? Brian shifted uncomfortably in his seat. I don't know, he said. I thought I had a reason, but no, there's no reason at all. I just have this overpowering feeling that I should hide down here. My head says go up and show myself, but my instinct tells me to scuttle around in the shadows like a beetle. Perry grabbed him by the arm. Then you're lucky I'm here. We can go up together. And if you feel the need to scuttle into the shadows, I can tell you to pull yourself together. Brian seemed to perk up at this idea. I like the sound of that, Perry. You can keep me on the straight and narrow. He got up, slung his machete over his shoulder, and fastened his translator to a pouch on his neck. Let's go and show everyone I'm still alive. He opened the door to his hideaway, only to be greeted by rows of bright red glowing eyes. He slammed the door and listened. They could hear scrabbling from the other side. Those robots are angry with you for some reason, said Brian. It's very strange. Perry pulled a face. It's downright creepy. Well, we can't go that way. Brian went to the back of his den, unscrewed a panel, and pulled it away to reveal a dark and forbidding tunnel. These are the ducts to the solar vents. When we suck out the energy of a sun, the energy is channeled through these into the solar stacks. We can travel to the top of the ship inside them. Perry looked nervous. That doesn't sound very safe to me. Brian shook his shiny head. It's only a problem if we're actually in the process of solar harvesting. But we're not due to get to Magnox Major for months. It'll be perfectly safe. Perry gave a doubtful grin. You sound just like the doctor, she said. Fletnick stared at Spaulding's dead body and clapped her hands to her head, eyes wide in fear. What do we do? We talk to the navigational computer and persuade it not to kill us all, said the doctor crisply. Let's get started. He jumped to the nearest keyboard and his fingers became a blur on the keys. Ah, I've managed to access the computer's personal interface. This should save some time. A 
a smiling computer-generated face appeared on the screen. Artificially bland, yet pleasantly welcoming. So, of course, it annoyed the doctor intensely. Computer, he said in his most authoritarian tone. Please state your most recent course heading. Upon Mr. Revere's demise, this ship has been programmed to honor his last wishes and follow preset coordinates into Tyrese's Minor. Tyrese's Minor is two million kilometers in diameter and is situated at the center of a system of 15 inhabited planets. Total population, 25 billion. It is partially composed of 80% hydrogen and 20%... I'm not concerned about what Tyrese's Minor is partially composed of, the doctor snapped. As long as it's not partially composed of us. You realize that if you carry out your program, everyone on this ship will be killed? And that means you, as an artificial intelligence, will be breaking the first law of robotics. Do no harm to organic life forms. All personnel are free to leave the ship at any time. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. The doctor's voice was dripping with sarcasm. I've checked the life pods and they've all been jettisoned. The maintenance of the escape vessels is not the responsibility of this computer. Please direct all complaints to Executive Technician Brian Meadows. Can you at least open the doors that lead to the bottom of the ship? They've all been sealed. I have my own special life pod down there that can take everyone away from here. The computer's reply was instantaneous. The fire doors in that area have been sealed because of their proximity to the engines. When diving into the heart of the sun, the safety of the crew is this computer's first priority. But you're still going to let the crew die anyway. That is true. But until they die, their safety is this computer's first priority. The doctor gave the computer a good hard kick. It didn't make him feel any better, but it was all he could do. Don't you see what Spalding Revere instructed you to do is murder? It's wrong. The smile on the computer-generated face stayed fixed in place. My programming, says Spalding Revere, is a god. How can a god be wrong? During this exchange, Fletnix had left the inner sanctum and was now standing on the viewing platform, staring out at the huge windows. She was transfixed. Teresa's miner dominated the view, a huge, bloated ball of fire. She could see golden eruptions on the surface, jets of fire curling upwards and almost touching the ship. Having terminated his conversation with the computer, the doctor joined her. Sun God Intergalactic, bringing the power of the sun to your door. That's not funny, said Fletnix. Then she suddenly grabbed the doctor's sleeve with alarm and screamed, Look! Through the window, the hull of the sun god was starting to blister with the heat. Bits of it were peeling off, like a snake slowly shedding its skin. I can't believe it, she whispered. This ship is built to withstand temperatures of thousands of degrees. As she spoke, the window began to bulge, the edges of it turning orange and black, as if an invisible giant was aiming a blowtorch at it. It's going to get a lot hotter very soon, muttered the doctor grimly. We haven't got a lot of time. Okay, don't move, either of you, said a voice. Transfixed by the view, they hadn't noticed the ping of the lift. 
They turned to see Duncan pointing his gun at them. Stay where you are, whoever you are, he snapped, waggling the gun at the doctor. Lorraine emerged behind him, stepped forward and struck the doctor on the cheek. How dare you pretend to be Mr. Revere? The doctor rubbed his face. I never pretended to be Spalding Revere. It's hard enough trying to keep track of all of me at the best of times without pretending to be other people. Just then Warren emerged from the inner sanctum, his face as white as a sheet. It's true, everyone. Oh, my gods. The recording was true. Mr. Revere's dead, and we're all going to die with him. I take it you've seen Mr. Revere's last message, said the doctor. Warren seemed to see the doctor for the first time. Yes, it was shown in the conference room. What's it to you? I'm guessing that's why he scheduled your executive meeting, so you could witness his big announcement. Okay, Mr. Know-it-all, who are you? Duncan demanded. Oh, me? I'm just the doctor. I will answer to Mr. Know-it-all if you like, but at the moment I'm simply a victim like you, trapped on this ship, trying to find a way to stop us plunging into the sun. Duncan gave a mirthless laugh. <laughs> and have you found a way? No, said the doctor, reluctantly. The navigational computer is refusing to accept any commands other than Revere's last wishes. I'm sure I'll think of something, but until I do, all suggestions gratefully received. All the time, Tiresis Minor was getting nearer. Even with the filters down over the windows, it became impossible to look at directly. My gods, muttered Duncan. It's so close. There is something we can do, Warren said slowly. I've been thinking about it ever since we saw the message from Mr. Revere. Duncan and Lorraine looked at him expectantly. Well, he said, this ship absorbs suns, doesn't it? Of course, Duncan was nodding furiously. All we have to do is activate the solar harvester. Lorraine finished the thought. Drain Tyrese's miner of energy, and we can just sail through the remains. The three of them sagged in relief. That's very clever, agreed the doctor. Thank you, said Warren, proudly. Even though he knew the doctor wasn't Spalding Revere anymore, Warren still felt he was talking to someone very important. However, the doctor continued, the computer said that Tyresis provides the light and heat for 15 inhabited planets. I believe it mentioned 25 billion people. What's going to happen to them if we drain their sun? Warren pulled a guilty expression. Well, um, if we do the harvesting process on a sun without putting the surrounding planets in a warp sleeve first, then, um, every one of those people on the planets will die, said the doctor helpfully. Yes, mumbled Warren. That's why you didn't mention it straight away, isn't it, Warren? said the doctor. You were hoping something else could be done instead, like persuade the navigational computer to change course. Yes, said Warren, averting his eyes from the doctor's gaze. There was an uncomfortable silence. Look, the plan still works in principle, said Duncan at last. Let's do it. Fletnix was outraged. What? No way! Killing all those people! We can't do it! 
It's them or us, he said gruffly. Do you want to die? Fletnik shook her head. Of course I don't want to die, but... Exactly, said Lorraine. Sometimes in business you have to make these harsh decisions. That's right. It's just business, added Warren, his voice hardening. It's all in Spalding Revere's book, The Craft of the Deal. The people on those planets are in direct competition with us. If we don't crush them, we will get completely liquidated. The silence fell again. The doctor put his hands on his hips and shook his head sadly. I've heard of many justifications for mass murder, but that was the most pathetic. We'll just have to find another way. Duncan's gun was still pointed at the doctor. It's not up to you, doctor. Go on, Warren. Start harvesting. The atmosphere was hot and clammy, and a sickly odour filled the room. Fletnix's nose was very sensitive. Was it the insides of the ship slowly melting? Or was it the guilty sweat pouring off the others? Warren, shouted the doctor, think about what you're doing. You're contemplating mass murder. I'm not contemplating, doctor. I've already decided. Never contemplate. Always just go with your gut. The Craft of the Deal, Chapter 12, Page 409. Warren turned to a control panel by the viewing platform. On it was a pair of huge levers, one red, one black. He pulled the red lever and a low rumble shook the ship. Perry and Brian were making slow progress through the ducting. Its smooth sides had widened out, much to Perry's relief, but now the angle of the shaft was almost vertical. She was forced to climb by pressing her back against one wall, her feet against another, and walking herself up while Brian scuttled ahead of her. Below, far, far below, was an oval aperture. Whilst high above them, Perry could see a round, tiny circle of light. She felt as if she was climbing up a water pipe with a cockroach to escape through the plug hole. Then they heard the low rumble. What's that noise? Perry yelled. Brian's electronic voice was almost submerged by the echo in the ducting. But she could just about hear his words. No, it can't be. The walls of the ducting started to vibrate, and Perry pressed her back hard against the wall to stop herself from falling. The duct was bathed in light, and she had to screw her eyes shut. She heard a scuffling beside her, and suddenly Brian was there, clicking his mandibles in agitation. He pointed down to the aperture. It had opened, and through the force shield they could see a fierce orange light. They've opened the fence, he said. I don't understand. We should be nowhere near a sun. I guess that really bright orange suggests otherwise. Yes. Perry holds herself up. So we have to climb faster and we have to get out straight away or we get burned to a crisp. Brian was already moving, climbing as fast as he could. No, we won't get burned to a crisp. There won't be time. The heat will be far too intense for that. It's more likely we'll be completely vaporized in a millionth of a second. Do you know, if you ask me, began the doctor. No one's asking you, growled Duncan. The doctor ignored him. 
If you ask me, I have a feeling this isn't going to work. Lorraine was getting irritated. Look, what is your problem, Doctor? She said. It's not as if the people on those planets are human. They're just subgrade aliens, after all. The Doctor gave a thin smile. I happen to be an alien myself, in your terms. Her face crinkled with open disgust. That figures. Whenever anything gets messed up, there's always an alien at the bottom of it. I can't believe you're saying that stuff out loud, spat Fletnicks. That is just so racist. Lorraine clapped her hands to her cheeks in mock horror. Oh dear, I'm going to get into trouble with Mr. Revere. <gasps> oh, hang on though. I won't, will I? Because he's dead, Fletnicks. What a relief. I can stop pretending and I can say what I like. She turned to Warren. Go on, she snarled. What are you waiting for? Warren's hands hovered over the controls, as if he was having a last-minute crisis of conscience. Oh, for goodness sake, sighed Lorraine. She seized the black lever and plunged it down. The clangs and rumblings were deafening now. Perry had managed to crawl to the top where Brian was already trying to unscrew the fastenings on the transparent hatch. It was slow going, so Perry helped, picking a latch and tugging with all her might. It's not moving, she yelled. Brian turned the volume up on his translator so he could yell back. We have to keep trying. Below them, Perry could see the oval aperture and through it a boiling mass of fire. It looked like it would only be a matter of seconds before the entire energy output of the sun would be flooding through the ducting. It's happening! She screamed. But nothing happened. The aperture closed, and the orange light disappeared. Brian unscrewed the last of the fastenings, and the hatch flipped open. They dragged themselves through and fell onto the floor, exhausted. They were inside a tiny room with more hatches, leading to different parts of the ship. <sighs> that was lucky, she gasped. Luck had nothing to do with it, Brian said. Somebody aborted the process. That's what I said, Perry panted. Lucky. Warren, Lorraine and Duncan watched with dismay as the lights went out on the control panel. What's going on? What did you press? Warren demanded. I pressed what I was meant to, snapped Lorraine. Well, you must have done it wrong, shouted Duncan. There's only two levers, she shouted. I can hardly make a mistake. Lorraine's eyes bulged with rage. She stared angrily around the room, looking for someone to blame. Seeing nothing but her own reflection in the plastic glass, she rounded on the doctor and Fletnicks. You knew this was going to happen, she snarled. I had an inkling, admitted the doctor. What did you do to this machine? Me, said the doctor, a picture of innocence. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. A computer screen sprang into life. The smug face of Spalding Revere looked down on them. Hi again, everyone. Oh, by the way, he boomed. In case you try and rob yourselves of the honor of traveling to the next life with me, all precautions have been taken. 
The Sun Harvester has been disabled. Farewell, my loyal slaves. See you on the other side. He winked, and the screen went dark. Oh dear, sighed Warren. Oh hell, muttered Duncan. Lorraine snatched the gun from Duncan's belt. Hey, said Duncan. She pointed it at the doctor and Fletnicks. Look at them. They're laughing at us. They're celebrating the fact that their fellow aliens have been saved and we're all going to die. Lorraine, put the gun down. They're always laughing at us. Phil, animals, she screeched. They're all just animals. She screeched again, but this time it was without any words and it grew higher and shriller. Then Lorraine's head erupted. Her nose surged out of her face and became curved and hard. Her feathery hair was suddenly composed of real feathers, and her screeching became that of a bird, because her head was the head of a bird. A huge, yellow-eyed bird of prey in an expensive pantsuit. Fletnix turned and saw that the others were changing too. Duncan was sprouting long black hair. His eyebrows thickening, ears spreading, and stretching up towards the ceiling. He was becoming a dog from the neck up. He started to bark at the air, snarling and yelping. Fletnix was almost afraid to turn around to Warren. But she screwed up her courage and whirled to face him. Warren's head was now encased in thick green skin. His mouth was a snout, filled with thick, jagged teeth. He was a crocodile. Incredible breathed the doctor. Their DNA has been partially rewritten. They're turning into living Egyptian hieroglyphs. Lorraine was trying to peck at Duncan's eyes. Duncan was giving a low growl, and Warren was eyeing up Lorraine's neck. They started flailing towards each other. They look really angry, said Fletnix. The doctor shook his head. I think they're more confused. Fletnix's eyes widened. They're not the only ones. At that moment, one of the computers gave up the battle against the searing heat and took it upon itself to explode. Flames roared into the air, and Duncan, Lorraine and Warren recoiled, screeching and howling. Their species' survival instincts are kicking in. It means they're afraid of the fire, said the doctor. Good for them, Fletnix yelled. I'm not too keen on fire either. The doctor managed to get behind the three animal-human hybrids and pressed the button for the lift. The doors opened with a ping, and Warren, Lorraine and Duncan obligingly staggered inside, retreating from the flames. The doctor reached into the lift, pressed a button, and quickly snatched his hand back as the doors glided shut. I've sent them back down to the conference rooms, he said. With any luck, they can stay there and we can get them back to normal before they eat each other. Ah, we do have to stop the ship crashing into the sun first, said Fletnix. I am aware of that, replied the doctor. Fletnix watched as the windows first bubbled and then burst. She fancied she could see a screaming face in the patterns in the glass, as if the ship itself was crying out in pain as it died. There was a brief feeling of breathlessness, and then the emergency force shield kicked in encasing them in a small pocket of breathable atmosphere. That force shield is being generated by any one of those computers, she said. If it's the next one to blow, that's it. It's all over. Yes, said the doctor sadly. 
I rather think this could be the final end. Oh well. I've had a good innings. I haven't! Yes, it's been a good life. At least Perry is safe in the TARDIS. I only hope he can get her back home. Perhaps I will live on in her memories. She will tell her stories to her children. And they will tell those stories to their children. And the legends of my deeds will be like stardust on the astral wind. At that moment, a hatch in the floor opened, and an exhausted, filthy, sweat-stained woman tumbled out. She collapsed on the floor, forcing the air into her lungs with huge, shuddering breaths. <sighs> Hi, Doctor! Perry! What are you doing here? The Doctor harumphed. You're meant to be safe in the TARDIS! There was a bit of a change of plan. Perry looked around at the burning computers and the broken windows. <sighs> Am I interrupting anything? Fletnick stretched out a hand and helped Perry up. No, your friend the doctor was just in the middle of eulogizing himself. Here, said Perry. He does that. Then a second figure emerged from the hatch, a man with the head of a beetle. Fletnick screamed. It's okay said Perry. He's a friend. His name is Brian. Brian, said Fletnix. Is that you? Brian bowed his huge head. Yes, Fletnix, it's me. I think my implant triggered some kind of metamorphosis. Everyone else has been transformed into a hieroglyph. Duncan, Lorraine, Warren, everyone except me. I don't know why. The doctor surged forward and shook Brian by the hand. Brian Meadows, delighted to meet you. I'm told you're the technical executive. Any ideas how we can stop this ship plunging into the sun? The doctor told Perry and Brian what was going on, and their expressions stretched in horror and disbelief. Brian shook his head. You've talked to the navigational computer. At great length, sadly. Then I don't know what to suggest. The doctor looked despondent. I was afraid you'd say that. Doctor! shouted Fletnix. The lift doors had pinged open, revealing about a dozen robot cats. They padded into the viewing platform, growling and hissing, zeroing in on Perry and ignoring everyone else. One of them prepared to launch itself at her. Perry! shouted the doctor. Then, incredibly, Brian's body cracked open, revealing bright green wings which uncurled and began to flap. Lifting off the ground, Brian flew over the heads of the others. He grabbed Perry, pulled her into the air, and carried her to the other side of the room and out of immediate harm's way from the cats. I didn't know you could do that, said Perry. Neither did I, said Brian. It would have made our lives a lot easier if I had. Everyone ran into the inner sanctum, forcing the door shut just before the robot cats reached them. <sighs> that was close gasped Perry. God, that was really scary, breathed Fletnix. My hearts are pounding, fit to burst. The doctor drew himself up to his full height. Of course, he clapped his hands to his head. That's it. How simple. What a fool I've been. The doctor whirled around a full 360 degrees, as if he'd suddenly had a hundred places to be and he couldn't decide where to go first. That's why the cats want to attack Perry. Of course. The doctor grabbed Perry by the arm and pulled her towards the sarcophagus. Ow! 
cried Perry. You're pinching my skin. He picked up Spaulding Revere's body and unceremoniously dumped it in the corner. Sorry, Perry, but there's no time to lose. Lie down in the sarcophagus, please. Obediently, Perry scrambled into the sarcophagus and gave the doctor a nervous look. You're not going to bury me, are you? With any luck, I'm going to stop us all getting buried. Fletnix looked on in puzzlement. What are you doing to her? It's very simple, said the doctor. Don't you see? The navigational computer was programmed to send this ship into the sun when Spaulding Revere died. But how did it know when that moment had arrived? Well, it was monitoring his heart. The doctor yanked two electrodes off Spaulding's body and attached them to Perry. Ow, she said. They're cold. Don't worry, it's going to get a great deal hotter if this doesn't work. He flicked a switch back and forth. Of course, it's a bit basic to use a heartbeat rather than, say, the ceasing of brain functions, but I'm guessing that's to do with Spaulding and his obsession with ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians believed that the heart, rather than the brain, was the source of everything. Wisdom, memory, the personality, even the soul. But Spaulding knew there were risks involved. Okay, but I still don't understand. The doctor pressed his hand to his chest. Fletniks, I'm not human. I have two hearts. How many does your species have? Well, if you must know, I've got three. Exactly! We're not human! If we replaced our heartbeat with Spaulding's, it wouldn't sound the same. But if another human tried... Brian chittered with excitement. That's why he changed me and the other board members into non-humans. Exactly, said the doctor. The DNA of every human on board was rewritten. But he didn't reckon with Perry here. Thanks to our arrival, she is the only one left on board with a human heartbeat. That's why the robot cats have been targeting her. They've been trying to inject an implant into her so she can change too. So, said Brian, you're going to substitute his heartbeat with hers. Better than going to. I've done it. I switched on the machine to register Perry's heartbeat 30 seconds ago. They all stopped and listened to the ship. Under the groans of the hull and the distant alarms, they could hear the steady beat of Perry's heart. Has it worked? Perry's nervous voice drifted from inside the sarcophagus. I don't know, he shouted into the air. Computer, are we still programmed to crash into the sun? There was an ominous series of clicks and bleeps. Correct. Why? Can't you detect Mr. Revere's heartbeat? More ominous clicks and bleeps. The computer voice was still low and soothing, as if it was discussing nothing more serious than a favorite recipe. Mr. Revere's heartbeat ceased to function 3.5 hours ago. Data indicates that no human can survive, unsupported, without heart functionality for more than 10 minutes. Therefore, logic dictates Mr. Revere is still deceased. There was a stunned silence from everybody. Then the doctor laughed with a mocking tone. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. He shook his head in disbelief. You poor, pathetic machine. You have no idea, have you? Such lack of understanding. He jabbed a finger into the air. Call yourself an employee of Mr. Spaulding Revere? He should have fired you on the spot. Or pulled your plugs out. Whatever you would do when firing a computer. You 
have committed a terrible mistake. The computer word with concern. Mistake not detected. Really? Look into your programming. Are you really saying that your boss, Spalding Revere, is not capable of restoring his heartbeat after a mere three hours? Mr. Revere is a god. What's the point of being a god if you can't do things like that? The computer was silent. Well, shouted the doctor, do you not agree? Do you not believe? Do you not believe in the power of Spalding Revere? Then there was a lurch. The computer said, course set to Magnox Major. Sun Harvester operational. Welcome back, Mr. Revere. Gotcha, said the doctor under his breath. Quite a lot happened after that. As the sun god limped away from Tiresis Minor, the doctor set to work reprogramming the robot cats and the company implants, so Brian, Duncan, Warren and Lorraine became human once more. While they took it in turns to pretend to be Spalding Revere's heartbeat, the doctor took the opportunity for mischief. He reprogrammed the computer so that Fletniks was Spalding Revere's next of kin. All the assets and shares of Sun God Intergalactic would be hers, on condition that she change the purpose of the company to something more environmentally friendly, like replacing ice caps or regrowing rainforests. Fletniks was happy to agree, and Brian said he would be equally happy to give technical help with whatever she decided to do. So, Fletniks became the CEO of Sun God Intergalactic, much to Lorraine's annoyance. But old habits died hard, and Lorraine was soon fetching Fletniks cups of coffee and asking her if her chair was comfortable enough. When they finally docked at Sun God Intergalactic's main base of operations, Fletniks decided not to salvage the ship. I think we should leave the sarcophagus alone, she told the doctor. Once the navigational computer realises that Spalding is dead, the ship will drift back to where it was destined to end, in the heart of Tiresis Minor. Before you do that, said the doctor, there's something rather precious that Perry and I must retrieve. Bidding farewell to Fletniks, they took the lift down to the room where they had first landed. As the doctor opened the door of the battered old police box, a robot cat padded into the room and strolled towards Perry. Instinctively, Perry tensed, raising her arms to protect her face, but the cat merely walked around her and went towards the doctor. Its eyes glowed. Then it let out a loud electronic purr and rubbed itself against his leg. The doctor reached down and tickled under its chin. Who's a cute pussy cat? I do get on so well with robot pets, he said. Perhaps it's time I got another one. What do you think, Perry? Perry folded her arms defiantly. Absolutely not. No, not a chance. Never in a million years. I am exercising my veto. No robot cats in the TARDIS. Oh, well, said the doctor with heavy pathos. He looked up, unable to resist one of his awful puns. If that's the way you want it, fair enough. Doctor Who, The Flight of the Sun God by Nev Fountain 
was read by Nicola Bryant and is published by BBC Audio. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.